This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. For more audiobooks and other content, please visit reconstructionistradio.com. Book title: Church Shift. Author: Sunday Adelijah. Published by Charisma House. Copyright: 2008. Narrated by Jason Garwood. Chapter 12: The Orange Revolution. Our bold march on City Hall in the spring of 2004 gave our church a major victory in the face of potential danger. Before that time, our church was not permitted to own land. Now the government gave us a large piece of property right in the city. It didn't cost us a dime. Standing up to the authorities became another step on our journey that would transform our nation. But in a breathtakingly short time, God went much further and used our example to start a political revolution that changed Ukraine's government. Rumblings of Discontent In November 2004, six months after our march, Ukraine held presidential elections. Unlike in the United States and other Western countries, where elections are mostly transparent, fair, and democratic, Ukraine's elections were still a murky business. The candidate of the established Moscow-backed government represented the old, heavy-handed, and corrupt way of doing things. His opponent was Viktor Yushchenko, who represented democracy and a more open, servant-hearted leadership. The election was very close, and a runoff was held between the established candidate and the challenger, Yushchenko. When the votes were counted, it became clear that Yushchenko had won. But the current government leaders were rigging the vote count to keep themselves in office. This did not surprise anyone. It was common for sitting governments to steal elections in our part of the world. But this time, the political and socioeconomic atmosphere of Ukraine was as explosive as a tinderbox. People had tired of corruption and chaos in their leaders. Bureaucracy and a deficient executive had led many people to absolute poverty. Social problems had worsened to the point of crisis. Street children, drug addiction, alcoholism, crime, prostitution, and AIDS were ravaging the country, but not being addressed. The Ukrainian people, many living on the edge of poverty, spent their lives working for the benefit of a small group of people who were in power. The corrupt system gave ordinary citizens no legal recourse. Minimum wages were barely enough to keep people from starving. Ludicrously low pensions humiliated the elderly people who had worked all their lives for the country. Young people saw no future for themselves. This contrasted with the millions of dollars of the so-called new Ukrainians who considered themselves the elite of society, but who were taking the wealth of the country for themselves through corruption and unjust laws. So when the government tried to rig the election, people quickly realized they were being ripped off. But this time they took action. For decades, our country had been frozen solid, paralyzed, and afraid. The communist mindset still ruled. But our church's march on City Hall, which was widely reported and criticized in the major media, had had a strong positive effect as well. It had warmed up the spiritual climate in the whole country. People saw that if you wanted things to change, you must stand up for your rights. You must demonstrate the justness of your cause. The country has seen us call for righteousness and openness in our leaders, and instead of being greeted by bullets and tanks, the leaders gave us what we asked for. Our actions helped to clear the fear from people's minds. Boldness came to everyday Ukrainians. They began to dream of freedom. 
They developed a willingness to fight for their rights. They saw that the government is to serve the people, not hold them captive like cattle. As the newspapers and television reported that the established candidate had won, the nation shook off its paralysis. People spontaneously took to the streets and gathered in Independence Square, the main city square in Kiev. Hundreds of thousands of citizens left their jobs and homes to stand up for what was right. There were many Moseses in Ukraine. They rose up to guide the future of their nation. People from our church went out by the thousands to stand with the country to defend the integrity of the elections. Soon, half a million people crowded into Independence Square. We adopted orange as our symbol of protest. It was a symbol of spring, new beginnings, and new brightness in the heart of Ukraine. Even though we were met by soldiers with guns, we were convinced of the justness of our cause. Foretold by God As a church, we had been expecting some sort of major social change for more than a year. I had prophesied several times that God was about to do something great in Ukraine. In March 2003, I said publicly, God is opening the heaven over Ukraine. The nation, which was humiliated, will start rising again. Thus says the Lord, Hitherto were you abased, but now, by my sovereignty, will I start lifting you up. I tell every humiliated one now, start moving boldly, start moving firmly, start moving bravely, because your God will go in advance of you. Leading up to the election, our church fasted and prayed for months for a good outcome. This tradition of relying on fasting and prayer went back to 1997, when we began holding two yearly fasts, plus monthly three-day fasts, during which we interceded for our country. The summer fast of that very year, 2004, was dedicated to the presidential elections to come. We had prepared well in prayer. During the revolution itself, 4,000 of our members prayed and fasted for the potentially violent standoff to be resolved. In March 2004, God had confirmed that he was about to do something in our country by sending another prophecy. On that day, I said these words. Soon the whole Ukraine will be celebrating because the Spirit of God will take over all the spheres of society and will triumph over every iniquity, lawlessness, and sin. God will subdue every name under the heavens and will manifest his omnipresent glory in this country. He will shake the top and the bottom. He will shake the economy and the polity. He will shake the country until every knee bows before him. God will visit Ukraine, and it will be an appearance of his glory and grace. It will be a sovereign act of God. It will not depend on a person or a particular church. God himself will visit this country. He will raise up Ukraine. God will visit Ukraine, and nobody can stand in the way to prevent it from happening. No man can prevent it. The devil can't prevent it. God has decided to move, and he will move. God will start raising ministers in all spheres of society. Politicians will start preaching. Businessmen and bankers will serve God. The celebrities will worship him. I prophesy this with the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Ukraine will change. It doesn't matter how much time will pass, it will take place. Our children and grandchildren will walk the streets safely because God's protection will be this country's covering. Ukraine will be shaken up by the power of God. This country will find out that God is real and He is in the people business. 
Everybody will know that God is the master of this earth, and you can't mess around with him. He doesn't want to tolerate sin and lawlessness in this land. God will reveal himself so that his truth reigns. People will start to change and reconsider their standings. Many will see that only with God, who is alive today, the future is possible. Ukraine will be filled with the evangelical movement, the movement of transformation, bringing many to repentance. People will turn to God even without preaching the gospel and will be hungry to know him. Everyone living in Ukraine will get to know about God's supremacy. God has already made the decision to visit this country. God himself will touch people's hearts and they will bow down before him and turn to him in prayer. Believers of all denominations and confessions will begin each day with a corporate prayer. God's mighty hand will be seen in this. God is looking for individuals whom he can trust, who will lead the people. God is looking for someone to reveal his glory through. We, as Christians, have the privilege before the people of the world to boast of the name of the Lord, to rejoice and be proud and celebrate that we are fortunate to be chosen by him. You will be the witnesses of these events, and you will remember my words. You will be the history makers because God is opening the heavens over Ukraine. God will start raising the oppressed and humiliated by his sovereign will. He himself would go before them. God will do incredible things through these people, things they haven't even dreamt of. People who thought that they weren't chosen will appear among those chosen. God will raise many a Moses in the social, political, spiritual, scientific, and artistic spheres. He will raise people who will be able to resist the present-time pharaohs by the power of the living God. Nobody will be able to oppose God's chosen people, because no power can stop or overthrow God's power in this country. Ukraine will know that there is one God and master of the earth, Jesus Christ. This prophecy prepared my heart and the hearts of many others for what was to come. When it did come, we welcomed it and threw ourselves into support of our country. Revolution In that glorious winter of 2004, hundreds of thousands of us gathered in Independence Square to protest the unfair results of the presidential election. It was the most wonderful revolution any country had ever seen. Not a drop of blood would be shed. There were no angry mobs fomenting revenge. There were no would-be Lenins or Mavericks shouting through megaphones. Rather, the people were singing, dancing, laughing, and handing out flowers to the police guards. Huge crowds in the square chanted, Yushchensko, and we are for a fair vote. They openly disputed the falsification of the vote count, accused the officials of breaking election laws, and demanded that the government resign and nullify the results of the Central Election Committee which had stolen the victory from Yushchenko. People stayed in Independence Square day and night, playing music, giving speeches, chanting uplifting slogans, waving giant orange flags and flags of Ukraine, and holding up big banners and colorful balloons. At night, the square was alight with candles. Patriotism and pride in our nation swelled in every heart. People dyed their hair and their beards orange to show their support of our orange revolution. What was happening in the streets of Kiev may have appeared strange to some, but it was familiar to people who attended our church and other Protestant churches. There was freedom, joy, love, dancing, music, and celebration of righteousness. Nobody was violent. It was perhaps the most joyful revolution in modern times. 
the government was so amazed by what was happening that they accused our church of hypnotizing the country and making everyone unreasonably happy. They thought we used black magic because the mood of the protesters was just like what government spies had seen in our church. They thought we had orchestrated this massive protest, but it was the Holy Spirit who had done it. We were just trying to keep up with his work. People from our church took an active role in sustaining the revolution in many ways. They donated food, warm clothing, and tents to the thousands of demonstrators camped in Kiev's freezing Independence Square. Our church erected a tent chapel in Independence Square and offered shelter to thousands of people who were protesting. Some people slept there. Others received medication, warm clothing, and food. Pastors, leaders, and church members were on round-the-clock duty in the tent. Thirty of our church members cooked hot meals to feed the protesters in the square. Some of our members served in Yushchenko's campaign. But above all, people needed spiritual food during that turbulent time. The Embassy of God had published a newspaper outlining God's principles for the national transformation of Ukraine, according to Kingdom Principles. During the revolution, more than half a million copies were handed out to Ukrainians, fueling their hunger for spiritual awakening that went beyond political revolution. A special spirit reigned in the capital of Ukraine during those days. The Spirit of God filled people's hearts with mercy and compassion for their neighbors. Kivites shared everything they had with those who came to the capital. People took shifts to be in the square. They hosted total strangers in their homes and took care of the inhabitants of the tent city that had spontaneously sprung up in Krishatik, a street that crosses Independence Square. I stayed often with the people of Ukraine in Independence Square. During those days, more than 10,000 members of our church held two meetings on the central streets of the city. They prayed for Ukraine and its future, for the peaceful settlement of the conflict, and for the healing and unity of the eastern and western regions of the country. Then, for the very first time in history of Ukraine, representatives from different Christian denominations, Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant, gathered in the square to pray every morning for the settlement of the situation in Ukraine and for the triumph of justice in the land. The events of those days brought a spiritual unity our country had never seen in its history. In spite of the alarming news emanating from the government headquarters, the people in the square were constantly filled with an inexplicable joy. The nation could not be overcome by evil anymore. For God had come to our land. It was his hand that restrained the army and military forces and kept the protests peaceful. At one point, young girls brought flowers to the thousands of soldiers and special police divisions, forming the shield walls against the protest. These men were prepared to fire on command, but these girls approached them without any fear. They glowed with God's love and human dignity as they gave them the flowers. It was breathtaking. God himself was moving on the hearts of the Ukrainian people. It was not just an orange revolution, but a spiritual revolution. We were not just standing against an unfair vote count, but against evil and wickedness in all positions of power and all spheres of society. In the square, as we waited for the government to respond to our demands, we chanted, God is with us and nothing can overcome us. After two weeks, the revolution achieved its victory. The events in Independence Square finished peacefully. The results of the rigged vote count were nullified, and the challenger, Yushchenko, was declared the victor. The world joined with us by television in our joyous celebration. 
The police and military forces never fired a shot. Now they smiled and received hot tea from the girls who had previously brought them flowers. It reminded me of the verse in Proverbs that says, quote, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies live at peace with him. End quote. Proverbs 16, 7. On that day I told the people, Our church is not separate from the nation. The church is with its nation. We are not standing aside and remaining aloof. Thousands of members are here today and many thousands of believers from other churches. This is the triumph not only of the revolution, but of freedom and the rights of man. New Beginning After the revolution, Ukraine entered a new era. The change in the mindset of the people completely changed the political atmosphere in the country. In January 2005, President Yushchenko amazed the nation by starting his first day in office with public prayer. He and his wife and children bowed their knees before an altar. Gathered with them were representatives of all the Christian denominations, including Protestant churches that were once considered cults in Ukrainian society. Now they stood together, blessing the president on his first day in office. After his victory, Yashenshko thanked us with a plaque of appreciation, saying, Your conscientious work has become a considerable part in that victory. It was you who protected democracy in Ukraine, standing for its high ideals, not considering your own interests. I am convinced that as long as there are people in Ukraine who have the same civil position, dignity, and spirit as you have, everything will be all right in this country. This plaque hangs in my office to this day. Suddenly, the political dialogue of our country changed. Politicians were speaking in spiritual terms about the health and unity of our country and the role of God in our nation. In an interview in 2005, Yushchenko himself told the nation that, quote, the lack of spiritual unity in Ukraine over the last 10 to 14 years is influencing every aspect of life, especially politically. I'm convinced that if we would have had more spiritual politicians, many of the things you heard about over the last months would have been stopped by the faith of those politicians, end quote. A member of the parliament told the media in a 2004 press conference, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that nothing good can happen in Ukraine if a strong Christian movement doesn't come and establish its principles in society. Without Christian principles, we can't manage to build something good. Yushchenko's inauguration was a day of celebration for us all. In his speech, he told the nation, Today, Ukraine is free and independent. We have shrugged off the heavy load of the past. No longer will someone tell us how we should live and for whom we should vote. We shouted a hearty amen to that. He then declared the beginning of a new life in the country, a life without corruption, crime, deceit, and indignation. His inauguration turned into a magnificent event that filled Independence Square with the outpouring of God's love, joy, and feeling of triumph of his principles in the land. Yushchenko expressed abundant thanks to God. During his first months in office, Christians were delighted with Yushchenko's unprecedented stand against corruption. He appointed many sincere Christian believers to be his ministers, including the Minister of Culture, the head of National Security of Ukraine, and others. A woman named Julia Timoshenko became the new Prime Minister of Ukraine. She is a woman of outspoken faith, and because of her influence, God's principles have permeated many government programs. 
She is dedicated to the spiritual development of the Ukrainian nation, especially the new generation. In a 2005 inaugural speech for the Cabinet of Ministers, she told a gathering of our country's leaders, It is not God who needs our faith, but individuals and society that need it. I am absolutely certain that Ukraine will never rise up until she kneels before God. But the old government leaders were not ready to give up that easily. They argued before the Supreme Court in January 2005 to try to have Yushchenko removed and their Moscow-supported candidate declared president. They singled out our church for particular blame. Quote, An undeniable fact is that they used psychological methods and led massive groups of people into states of trance and superficial hypnosis, like the Embassy of God sect does, for example, end quote. The government's lawyers told the justices according to the official record. By the way, the Embassy of God was, in the square, supporting the presidential candidate, Viktor Yushchenko. Also, we can't ignore the conclusion of the mayor of Kiev made during the meeting where he considered that, unfortunately, all the residents of Ukraine at Independence Square were hypnotized, end quote. These lawyers even showed the justices a copy of our church newspaper. But the hearing ended with their defeat. The Supreme Court upheld Yushchenko's victory, and the last gasps of the Soviet-style power grab were snuffed out. The Fruits of Freedom Ukraine today is a country blessed by God. The Lord trusted us to be participants in great historical events. We lived the Bible verse that says, quote, Remove the wicked from the king's presence, and his throne will be established through righteousness. End quote. Proverbs 25, 5. Our land, which was in darkness for 70 years, took the side of truth and is now experiencing God's blessing. The people of Ukraine see a great future. The newly elected government has an enormous amount of trust among the citizens. We are convinced that the government will help to lead the country to prosperity by applying God's principles. But even better than a changed government are the changed hearts of the people. The Ukrainian people have tasted the fruits of freedom and will not allow anyone to deprive us of it anymore. Spiritual revival has stirred in all spheres of the country, among everyone from ordinary citizens to the highest government leaders. People see no place for wickedness, corruption, bribery, or theft. Followers of God are taking key positions in the government. The oligarchical claims that once controlled the country's wealth and property through under-the-table deals have been smashed. But we also have seen firsthand that in times of spiritual and social revival, divine justice still operates. God's punishment comes to everyone who does evil things, and sometimes it comes quickly. The Bible says, quote, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. End quote. Hebrews 10.31 For example, on December 3, 2004, the president of the Credit Bank of Ukraine, a financier for the old government, died under mysterious conditions. On December 27, 2004, the Minister of Transport and Communications of the old regime suddenly died. On March 5, 2005, the former Minister of Internal Affairs died in a mysterious suicide. Nobody can say for certain that God's hand was in these events, but the timing seemed to indicate that the old order had passed. On the other side, God was lifting up believers into positions of prominence. In parliamentary elections, a member of the Embassy of God was elected mayor of Kiev, and his party won 20% of the city parliament seats. 
This mayor rose to prominence thanks in part to his coordination of our church's food distribution program in Kiev's poor neighborhoods. Ukraine is 75% Orthodox Christian, and Kiev is proud to be the motherland of the Russian Orthodox Church. Yet the growing influence of the Protestant churches can no more be denied. In this last election, more than 1,000 believers ran for various posts all over the country. They are now bringing the values and standards of the kingdom to their political offices. Thanks to these Moseses, God's principles have come to the highest levels of society. Today, the spiritual climate of Ukraine is being revived. Churches and cathedrals are being restored. God is bringing Ukraine back to its former glory. Our country has much to share with the world, for God has blessed us with abundant natural and spiritual resources. For a long time, the wealth belonged to the oligarchs who did ungodly things and cared only for their own interests. Now the wealth is available to all the people through diligence and hard work. Ours is a land chosen by God for this moment in history. In the very beginning of Christianity, history tells us that the Apostle Andrew ministered in the land where Kiev is situated today and prophesied that God would show special favor to the people of Ukraine and would raise up many churches in this country. I believe we are living the fulfillment of that prophecy. There are still many battles to fight. Recently, the BBC visited us and ran a news story about our church that aired around the world. It was a positive report, but a Russian Orthodox priest was quoted on camera saying about us, The followers become like zombies. They are fully devoted to the leader of the organization. They are ready to fulfill any of his desires. He is exactly right that our people are fully devoted to their leader, but the leader is not me, it's Jesus. What is happening in Ukraine is God-inspired, but it need not be unique. God has ordained similar revolutions for each nation and each individual. The Lord wants every person to find a promised land and learn to rule it by kingdom principles. The world is waiting desperately for us to do so. Kingdom Principles from Chapter 12 Number 1. When you are obedient to God's guidance, He can literally shake the foundations of your nation. Number 2. When the church takes a strong, visible stance in society, godly people will more easily rise to positions of influence and power. Number 3. God may have a bigger change in mind for your sphere of influence than you currently realize. Chapter 13. The World is Waiting for You Recently, I was invited to attend the high-profile Clinton Global Initiative meeting in New York City. We met to exchange ideas about solving global problems. At this meeting of the world's most powerful people, I conversed with Madeleine Albright, Colin Powell, Richard Branson, the Mayor of London, England, former heads of state, Desmond Tutu, and many other leaders. Everywhere I turned, there was a recognizable person. The setting was so informal that you could walk up to anyone and introduce yourself, which I did. But as I looked around, I saw very few church leaders. In fact, I can only recall seeing one other pastor there, the pastor of a large and well-known church in the United States. During the entire event, I wondered why this was so. I found my answer while talking to former President Bill Clinton. I wanted to know why I had been invited, so I asked him how he had heard about me and what I had done to merit being with all these bona fide leaders. He told me, I know about you. I like what I read about you. I love what you're doing. 
His answer spoke volumes to me about the state of the church. I had been invited because he had read about our church. If our church were only solving internal church disputes and concentrating on personal growth, nobody would have cared about me. But because we have stepped into the kingdom role God has called us to, I was counted among the most powerful people in the world, at least for those few days. It was a privilege to participate in that summit, but it also broke my heart. I nearly wept at how irrelevant Christians have become. Believers, by and large, are so buried in their churches that they are invisible to the rest of the world. We disengage from the world and still claim to be doing kingdom work. Even worse is how we criticize people who are doing kingdom work. People like Bill Clinton and rock star Bono are putting kingdom principles to work, yet people condemn Bono because he doesn't act like American evangelicals, and they criticize Clinton at any opportunity because they don't like his politics or personal behavior. Bono's efforts have resulted in billions of dollars going toward poverty abatement programs, and Clinton's global initiative is addressing problems God wants solved, alleviating poverty, improving health, stopping religious and ethnic conflict, and taking proper care of the earth. We may disagree with their means to solving these problems, but most church leaders have not even addressed these issues. They're on the sidelines. In fact, they're not even in the stadium. These problems mean life or death for countless millions. They mean much more than what color the carpet in the chapel is or who will sing in the worship band. But the Christian community is largely mute on the major issues of the day. As a result, God has passed over many believers. The people meeting to discuss issues of national and international importance are, for the most part, not Christians. Yet they carry God's burden for the poor, the unhealthy, the prisoner, the orphan, and the downtrodden. They are doing exactly what Jesus would do. But we are like the Levite and the priest in the story of the Good Samaritan. Both passed by the dying man. Both apparently were too caught up in their religious worlds to help. But there is hope. If I, a nobody from Nigeria, can be counted among the world's most powerful, what would happen if the whole church shifted and began transforming society as we are doing in Ukraine? What if someday we invited world leaders to our global summit and they were compelled to come because Christians were on the leading edge of solving problems? What a day that will be. Wanted people. Whether or not you realize it, you are a wanted person. The world is waiting for you to find your promised land and deliver people from the kingdom of darkness. We all have our own promised lands commissioned to us from God those special areas in society that desperately need our help. The world is waiting for the rulers of those promised lands to appear, you and me. Lost people want God's polished arrows to strike at the heart of injustice and unrighteousness. People know they need solutions to their problems and crises. They need to be unshackled. The Bible says, quote, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. End quote. Romans 8, 19-22 
God has allowed the world to be subjected to futility so that we might set people free with news of his kingdom. We have all the answers. We are indispensable to the health and well-being of our nations. The world simply cannot do without us. But many Christians don't realize how badly people who don't know Christ are suffering. People in the world face diseases, loneliness, poverty, curses, depression, and more. One person is hooked on alcohol and narcotics. Another is suffering from an inability to understand his talent, and so he feels rejected and depressed. Many people are literally tormented inside from sickness, poverty, corruption, addiction, or injustice. The whole world is under the bondage of sin and the slavery of vanity. Who makes man a slave? The devil, who is the prince of this world. Perhaps you have forgotten what it feels like to live without hope. It is like living in hell. Billions of people live that way every day. I have heard Christians say they cannot preach salvation to some people because they don't have problems. This is never true. Everyone who does not know Christ, no matter his position in society or his achievements, is suffering from futility. Everyone living without God is in torment. People are waiting for you and me to unlock their chains. They want deliverance from suffering more than they want anything else. Only we, whom God calls kings and judges of the earth, can deliver people from darkness. The key to their salvation is in our hands. Everything the devil does for evil, God can turn into good. His will is that the earth, quote, also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God, end quote, Romans 8.21. The world is waiting for you. Blind Leading the Blind Until you arrive in your promised land, people will grope around looking for solutions in the wrong places. Some people see the reason for their suffering an economic crisis, high prices, or an unfulfilling career or relationship. The thoughts of such people are concentrated on money, success, and self-gratification. Others think they will be released from suffering by finding a mate, or a new hobby, or prestige. But true happiness and joy are not guaranteed by any of these things. People who live according to the world's standards are confused, and they get into all kinds of trouble and destruction by chasing the wrong answers. Acts 17, 26-27 says God put in nations the desire to seek after him. Jesus is even called the desired of all nations, Haggai 2:7. All people have an inner emptiness that drives them to seek him. That's why there is so much idol worship in many nations. In a vacuum, people look for something to worship. Some nations worship money, sex, power, sports, and so on. They are waiting for someone to lead them into their proper destinies. Governments can't set people free from oppression, pain, disappointment, and depression. Only God can give self-esteem when people have none. The government can pass bills, but only the great healer can mend a broken soul. We are God's messengers to this generation, called by God to save mankind with the message of the kingdom. The whole world is waiting for you as it groans and travails. It's not enough for our churches to experience revival. Our nations must be transformed. The children of God must show the way of salvation to everyone else. In the times of ancient Israel, the Spirit of God was upon select people, judges, priests, kings, and prophets. But now God is raising up every believer in the family of God. 
He grants us all the authority and power of a king and a priest. There is not one Moses, but many. Give your life. Don't be afraid to suffer loss for the sake of Christ. He has already given his life for you. He died to save you. Therefore, let us do our utmost that the gospel may be spread throughout the whole world. Jesus said, quote, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. End quote. Matthew 16, 25. This is a choice each of us must make. When I graduated from university with distinction, I was told that I had a brilliant future. I had a chance to become a member of the Journalists' Union in Switzerland and to make a lot of money. But God said to me, I want you to stay in the Soviet Union and to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you be a missionary? It was hard for me to make the decision. I prayed and cried, but in the end I decided to stay in the Soviet Union and follow God's will. Sometime later, God asked me if I would be willing to give my life for Ukraine. For two whole nights, I was not able to sleep because I was thinking about this question. Then suddenly, I understood that my life was not my own. The fear of death disappeared, and I said, Yes, Lord, I will give my life for you. Since that day, my life has only gotten better. God has given me a wonderful calling, a wife and children, and a church that is like family to me. When you give your life for the gospel's sake, you often get back a much better life. Be a donkey. As you shift to occupy your promised land, become a donkey for Christ. This is biblical, as the Gospels say, quote, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. End quote. Matthew 21, 1-7 Jesus needed a donkey and a colt to enter Jerusalem. He needs the same thing to enter your areas of influence. God is saying to us today, I want to enter your city. I want to enter your school. I want to come into your workplace and your social sphere. I want to be with your family. The harvest is great and I need laborers and co-workers. I am ready to impact your areas of influence through you, but I need your help. I need someone to carry my influence there. Anything I have attained in Ukraine or elsewhere is because I have made myself a donkey for Christ. When Jesus entered the city, people welcomed him with enthusiasm, strewing the road with their garments and with branches from the trees. But I'm sure they barely noticed the animal he rode in on. Yes, this creature had an important mission to carry the master. But his mission was about Jesus, not about his own reputation as a worthy pack animal. Carrying the Son of God was enough for him. That's the example I follow, abasing myself and remembering that people do not need or care about Sunday at Elijah, just as they do not need or care about you. Rather, they need the God you carry. God wants to use us so that his glory might fill the earth. But it is his glory we carry, not our own. 
Our job is to step surely and confidently, doing our best as that donkey did the day it carried Jesus. I continue to do my best to make an impact for Christ. Recently, I spoke to the Israeli parliament. I have met with other countries as well to advise their government and leaders. I spoke to the United Nations. It's an amazing privilege, but through it all, I am reminded that I am God's foolishness, a boy from a Nigerian village that is so small it does not appear on any map. But God has used me to bring a message of personal and national transformation to the world. I hope you will allow your church to shift. I hope you will embrace your calling, find your promised land, and impact your world. Kingdom Principles from Chapter 13 Number 1. The Christian community is largely mute on the major issues of the day. The world is waiting for you to find your promised land and deliver people from the kingdom of darkness. Number 2. Lost people want God's polished arrows to strike at the heart of injustice and unrighteousness. We are indispensable to the health and well-being of our nations. Number 3. Everyone living without God is in torment. Number 4. Until you arrive in your promised land, people will grope around looking for solutions in the wrong places. Number 5. The government can pass bills, but only the great healer can mend a broken soul. Number 6. When you give your life for the gospel's sake, you often get back a much better life. Number 7. God wants to use us so that his glory might fill the earth. It is his glory we carry, not our own. Epilogue From the moment I was saved, the Lord made my life to be an example of what a Christian can accomplish when he goes for the best in God. I believe the Lord intends to do the same in every life. We must shift our thinking to allow him to do so. In the conclusion of this book, I think it will be a benefit and a blessing to share a brief analysis of my personal life. Saved at 19 years of age, I attended a gospel church where the word was preached for only six months before I left the shores of my country for the atheistic stronghold of Russia. However, I had read so much Bible and Christian literature that my friends thought that I was preparing for a serious university examination, while the more serious believers thought that I was an ordained minister and at least a 10-year-old believer. I began pursuing God and totally committed to stop any of my previous entangling sin. Before my salvation, I had numerous girlfriends dating freely with them. Once I knew God had forgiven me for the sin of fornication, I vowed never to touch a woman again until I married. It never happened until age 27 when I met my darling wife, Bose. That is how I discovered the power of holiness and the role of decision in it. Not dating between the ages of 19 and 27 made people think that I was fanatical. That consecrated lifestyle made me focus on discovering God. The result? Divine encounters and revelations in the school of the Holy Ghost. So much that everywhere I preach or speak now, almost everybody asks me what Bible school or seminary I completed. In the real sense, I never completed any. In fact, I was never officially a church member. I will normally tell them I was trained in the wilderness of life. Maximum and absolute pursuit of God produces maximum and absolute discovery of God. If our faith is not absolute, it is paralytic. It is either 100% faith and commitment or nothing at all. 
Even though there was no church, pastor, or fellowship of believers in my years behind the Iron Curtain, my maximum aspiration for God yielded its undeniable result when communism came down. At the age of 33, I had built the largest church in the former Soviet Union. At 35, I built the largest evangelical and charismatic church in Europe. I am happily married and have written over 50 books. Now that I am 40 years old, I feel I have maximized my life so much in God that I feel like the Apostle Paul, who says he was ready to go be with the Lord, but had to be here on earth because it was better for his followers. I feel I have done so much at 40 that I can now dedicate the rest of my life to sharing my experience with the rest of the body of Christ. I feel that every single Christian can be a world changer, a Moses, and a deliverer in his generation. That is how I have taught my members in Kiev. We have been able to plan over 600 churches in over 40 countries just in the last 10 years of ministry. My friend and spiritual mentor, T.L. Osborne, once said, Pastor Sunday is a young old man, young because of his age of less than 40 years old, old because at such a young age he has known what old men like me know and has been able to accomplish what many old men like me have not been able to do. May your life and your church shift for the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, be blessed.